okay, I need to learn this theory, apply it to myself, really understand it before I'm going to give it to others. And then the minute that that happened, you know, you sit with people and you're, you're sensing them and you're picking up on things, but that paired and partnered with this idea of, I am not here to fix anybody. I am not a therapist. I am not like going to change a life. I might, but it won't be because of me. It'll be because of like my use of this material and how I make them feel safe and all of that because I have that technique, not because I'm some like witchy healer. Hi, darling. Welcome to the Bedside Manor universe. This is a podcast. It's a show about the human side of helping people. And I'm your host. My name is Juliana. I'm a Katona yoga teacher, a world-renowned Ariana Grande scholar, and I'm also a student of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Now, when I say the human side of helping people, I really mean two things. First, I mean that this is a little peek into the personal side of the people whose help we seek when we need help. So they are helping people. These are your doctors, your nurses, your therapists, your acupuncturists, your teachers, caregivers of, of any kind, really. Now, I hate the word and term healer, and I hate referring to the work that we do in this space as healing. So I'm going to try not to use that word as much as possible. And caregiver to me is like a little bland to my ear. So uh, I'm just calling them helping people. I think I heard Brene Brown say that once and I loved it. So that's the first part. The second thing I mean is that this podcast is really dedicated to studying the therapeutic relationship that our jobs as caregivers, as helping people, are predicated on. The juicy, human, soft dynamic that gets created between two people, a patient and a provider, a teacher and a student, a parent and a child, etc., etc. Because that dynamic is really where Bedside Manor, as a concept, as a whole, as an entity, comes into play. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm about to drag my formal education a little bit, but I want to preface that by saying I absolutely, uh, (laughs) I'm really serious. I love acupuncture. No, I I do. I absolutely love studying Chinese medicine and acupuncture is my favorite thing in the world. Love this stuff. Um, But I will say that missing from my curriculum is a deep, substantial dive into this topic of bedside manner. And yeah, okay, we have like two classes sort of at the beginning and middle of the term that of the curriculum, you know, that sort of skim the surface of what I think is honestly pretty obvious and somewhat outdated basic basic principles of like biomedical ethics and things like this. But truthfully, everything that I've learned about cultivating rich, healthy, dynamic, therapeutic relationships has been from experience, from practice, from fucking up a lot, but mostly from listening and watching people who really have a knack for it. And at first, 
of course, that really bummed me out that I felt like there was this huge gaping hole in my formal education because the people side of this job is my favorite part of this job. But then I realized, you know what? This is not something that can be codified and packaged in this really clean, linear way. It can't be taught like that. There's no day in any kind of medical-esque type training program where someone just enters the room and sits you all down and says, okay, hey, you, here is how you do it. Here's how you help people. It just like doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It, it couldn't work that way. So I made a podcast so I could sit down the people that I really admire and respect and love and be like, okay, hey, uh, how do you do it? How do you help people? So that's why we're here. And today, the star of the show, and I do mean star, capital S star, is none other than Miss Alex Sherry. Now, if you know me, you already know Alex. And to know Alex is to love Alex. So you're likely already obsessed with Alex. Uh, But for those of you who don't know her, I just need you to know that Alex is iconic in every way that a person can be iconic. And she'll introduce herself in her own words in a minute. Um, But I just want to take a minute before we get started to tell you the reason I picked hers to be the first voice that you hear um, in this series of conversations. Now, I'm going to tell you a little schmoopy story. And if you hate podcast intros and you just want to get to it and fast forward, um, that's fine. You won't hurt my feelings. Go text your crush, come back in like two minutes. But if you want a little cheesy story and you want to schmoop it up with me, get cozy and uh, settle in here. So let's rewind. About four or five years ago, I want to say, I was in a really, really bad way. I was very removed from any kind of health practice, especially yoga, and uh, I just wasn't feeling right. So, you know, I was in my mid-twenties, I was feeling lost, the tale is old as time here, and I was coming out of a, of a phase, not a phase, an era of my life uh, in college where I was totally drinking the green juice yoga Kool-Aid. You know, I was just like well into it. I mean, I was like working at fucking Lululemon. It was bad. But it, it it didn't take me too long to feel like that whole scene was getting really old and I was really tired of just seeing bullshit everywhere around me. So eventually I walked away. And I walked away with a really bad taste in my mouth for this whole like wellness industry thing, which the bad taste still there, by the way. Um, But once I exited that world, because I wasn't really given any sort of technique or framework, I just kind of left and swung in the exact opposite direction of of the pendulum. And I was just spinning out and spinning out and spinning out with no techniques, no framework to orient myself in the world and like take care of myself on a very basic level. So I I struggled a lot with my health, with my mind. I didn't feel I didn't feel right in my body. And I had no idea how to take care of myself. I felt really unsupported and I was just searching and searching and searching and searching for something, some project, some job, some person that helped me feel like my body and my words and my vision and my relationships and my circumstances were all sort of converging in the same right space. 
cut to me working this very random job in Times Square just to pay the bills and have a bit of health insurance. I was losing my mind just from sitting there in an office, like typey, typey, emailing all day, sitting in a chair, just my absolute nightmare. And it all really came to a head one day. And randomly, I had this little voice in my head, just whispering into my ear saying, babe, I really hate to tell you this, but I think you need to go to a yoga class. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) yoga is stupid. I don't want to do it. But I thought, you know what? I cannot deny that I feel crazy right now. So I'm just going to do it. And before my little, you know, sabbatical, let's call it, uh, the only place, the only yoga experience that I had had leading up to that moment where I just sort of slammed the door and ran away, uh, the only resonant experience that I had had was at the Katona studio. And so I remember like, okay, if I'm going to go to a yoga class, if I'm going to drag myself to this, I'll at least make it a Katona class. And I know that there'll be, there, there will be some substance there. So I Googled Katona yoga in New York city. And I saw that the next class on the schedule available, uh, was Alex's class. I think it was like a Wednesday at 6 PM or something. So I left work early. I bought yoga clothes on the way to, on the way to class and as soon as I walked in the door, I felt that, that something, a little bit of that something that I had been looking for. And, and that combined with the way Alex spoke about the body, the way she used language to illuminate parts of my own experience, the way she made contact and filled the room with what I now see as this sort of signature charisma and warmth that she has. It just, it just felt right. And I felt at home. And I was hooked. So it it really started this massive, massive, massive therapeutic experience that ushered me into the next big phase of my life. I quit my job. I changed. I moved. I ended a toxic relationship. I started acupuncture school. You know, like all the things. It's like cliche, stereotypical, like life change stuff happened um, because of everything that I've experienced or as a result of, of everything that I've experienced in that studio and with the support of teachers like Alex. Um, and I never would have imagined on that day that I would be studying to be an acupuncturist five years later, that I would be teaching this material or spending my days devoted to the notion of helping people in this way, in their bodies. But if you had pressed me and asked if you'd asked me to describe like what's the what's the vibe of of how you would like to spend your days honestly i would be describing what my life feels like right now so that's that's pretty cool and you know i had that yearning at the time and it was really scary to kind of contend with that because i had no idea what to do with it but being in that room on that day with alex helped me really for the first time go down get in there, pull out that desire and that yearning and and just have a look at it, bring it to the light, bring it to the surface, give it some room to breathe and give it space to become its own thing over time. And really what's happened since then is that at any given moment on my trajectory, I can see how at each point I've developed a new 
technique, a new way of, of being able to make sure that my center actually reflects in my circumstances and my circumference. And on that faded day with Alex, nothing, nothing about my life on the inside matched my life on the outside. But it all started to change that day very slowly and very, very subtly. And who knows, maybe by listening to Alex herself articulate her experience as a teacher, but also as an ever teachable student in her own right, maybe that will help illuminate something for you um, and get a wheel turning inside of you that needs a good turn. So that's that's that. Schmoopy story over. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'll see you on the other side of the episode. Okay, enjoy. So my name is Alex Sherry. Uh, I am a yoga teacher. I teach Katona Yoga. Um, Katona Yoga is a very interesting style of yoga founded by Naveen Mishan. It is the only maternal yoga practice that I'm aware of founded by a woman and then predominantly developed and passed around by really strong and empowering women. So I'm honored to be a part of that clan. Um, so yeah, I teach at the studio in, in Manhattan, which is where I met you and know you from, and also at Sky Ting Yoga. Um, and yeah, I'm a yoga teacher, but kind of hate saying that because I feel sometimes just like I want to divorce myself from that term a bit. <laughs> I feel the same way. There's something so cringy and and we'll talk about this how you know when that phrase yoga teacher comes with so much connotation that it doesn't even remotely accurately describe what we do at the studio but the only way to to introduce yourself and then sort of qualify what you do (laughs) it just makes you sound like a snob to be like well it's we're not like the other kind of yoga but it's, it's genuinely true it is. It's so weird. I feel like, well, because there's like a script, you're like, oh, Malik, so what do you do? I'm, I'm a yoga teacher. Oh, yeah, you must be flexible. Or so funny, I once tried yoga, but I can't touch my toes. Like it's there's a, like, choose your own adventure, but it's usually the same of where those conversation goes. And then yeah, what to what you're saying, I feel like I have to qualify it and be like, but it's, it's not real yoga. It's like, it's a little, it's, it's different. It's, it's weird. It's doubt. And then you, you kind of are spiraling in this thing where, and then I'm like, why am I having to justify myself right now? Big time, big time. And like, <laughs> I often feel like the more I kind of add to my description where I'm like, oh, there's like sacred geometry and all this Taoist theory and Chinese medicine. Blah, blah, blah. People are like, okay, do I need a mat? Like what what are we, what are you talking about? Like what do you do? Like what do you actually do? So it's yeah, it's like scared them away. Yeah. Describing Katona Yoga, I think, is one of the hardest things about being a Katona Yoga teacher or student even. Totally. Totally. It's funny that that we're starting off this way because really the the main, I mean, I wanted to talk to you always, but (laughs) (laughs) the main reason I wanted you on this podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to defining a term, bedside manner, the more I'm having these conversations, the more I'm realizing that this really is 
a, like a language issue. It's a linguistic issue. And we're asked all the, all the questions around bedside manner, which is like, what does it mean? What is good bedside manner? What is bad bedside manner? How do you learn it? Uh, why is it important? All these things really boil down to a matter of the words and language we use and, and the way that we use conversation to develop therapeutic relationships. Because bedside manner like occurs in, you see it, you see evidence of bedside manner in therapeutic relationships. But it also, language also helps us write and share the stories that we tell ourselves and the narrative that we tell around health and healing and recovery and restoration and all the things that that are part of, of your work and, and our work. And you, Ms. Alex, are a master of written word and spoken word and all things language. And you have such a command of language. And it's one of the things that makes your classes so dynamic and interesting. And I always feel like I never know like what you're going to pull out as far as like adding to the material that, that we cover. And that's part of the architecture of what we teach. But you also, at least from where I'm observing from, you intertwine that so effortlessly with how you connect with students. So you like, <laughs> to me, I know this is just me, like it's not, it's not me gassing you up for no reason. I'm really in awe and it, it's like watching a master at work, how you use language to, to create these interpersonal connections. And it, it just feels like you, you have that on lock and, and you have a lot, a lot to, to teach from that perspective. So I would love to know, um, why language matters to you so much as as a teacher and in a caregiving kind of role well that's all just so nice of you to say by the way thanks for that feedback um that means a lot um it's an interesting thing because i i've always been drawn to language but i didn't grow up a reader at all i didn't grow up no like i didn't grow up academically inclined like i I think I've always maybe just naturally was born with like a knack of using words interesting, but like it didn't come from being studious when I was a child or, or that, or anything like that. And in fact, the opposite, um, I was a really bad student and didn't really get trained in the realm of, of reading, studying, understanding material that all happened uh, a lot later. And actually I, I really attribute a lot of like my love of books and reading now to forming my relationship with Abby because she's such a reader. And I remember being like, wow, you can get so much from literature. And I really took it seriously. And I was like, I want to become a reader, a more of a reader and so did. Um, but at the same time, I've always been, yeah, I've always found, it's interesting because I've always found it, I, I've always found a connection to like, to my words and to talking and to speaking and, and to using language. But I only as of late, I'd say in the past decade of my life, I feel have I started using my words productively instead of just like having word vomit. So like, I think I've always had a knack for like speaking, saying what I wanted, whatever, but it was kind of more destructive than it was creative. So I do think that the, the, the use of this material and reading and kind of just developing myself as a human has changed the, my literal narrative thread. Because while I, um, yeah, really love words and language, I think that I was using 
all of that to kind of burn and to, you know, be fiery and thought self-expression looked like one thing. And in the past decade of kind of harnessing it and using it differently, I've found a, a more healing relationship to words, which I think is what you were saying, where it kind of is, they are like connectors. And there's a language, I only really know how to speak English, but it, there's a there's a language that it be within the English language that you kind of get like a variety of different languages depending on who you're with and when you're picking up on subtleties of students in the room people different narratives if you know how to pick up on that and then use your words it's like you can develop a, a language with everybody in the room no matter where they're at um so yeah I where it comes from or something is just feels natural like I know that's kind of a, a, a maybe an annoying answer but it, there wasn't a moment where I was like words are delectable I love them it, <laughs> it just always has been but I think it's been the past 10 years of reading being in talk therapy um using my words and having to bring use them in relation to my feelings and self-expression and thinking of them more esoterically that the tone of them have have changed has changed that's so interesting because you were a gymnast, right? Yeah, I grew up and again, like not with academics at all. I was really an athlete. I was a competitive gymnast till I was like 15, then went right into playing soccer and running track and then ran track in college. And then my first year of running track in college, um, I had a boyfriend my freshman year and we were like, let's make all of our classes the same. And then we broke up and I was like, I want to get out of those classes because mm -hmm. I didn't want to see him every day and every hour of the day and somehow landed in a junior creative writing class, like one for only qualified juniors. And I was a freshman. So I like got in through the system somehow. And um, it was my first creative writing class ever. And it was this amazing teacher. And I just like kind of dove in and I, and, and I was, I, I loved it and I loved writing and using words and then reading and thinking critically about what I was reading and, you know, the discussion, the whole, that whole thing. So then, um, it totally changed my trajectory, that class. It made me want to study that more and change my major. I switched schools. I stopped being an athlete, which was really only developing one piece of me, my physical ability and, and, and the emotional athleticism, a bit of the mental athleticism. Um, but I wasn't necessarily using it to move to the next place. And so I felt when I kind of shifted and tried acting classes, tried and got into more of the arts is when I changed drastically as a human. That's amazing. That really proves my theory that all teachers are, are caregivers and that those having a great teacher is such a therapeutic experience because they're literally teaching you something you don't know. They're taking yeah. you somewhere you haven't been before and, yeah. and, and really watching, guiding you through a process of seeing your potential. Like it's not that, that, that switch wasn't there. It was just waiting to be turned on inside of you. And it's not that you weren't intellectual as a kid. It's just that you were being trained in one way to be embodied and athletic and performative in your, your, your physical sense. Yeah. But there's like, there was a seed of untapped potential that totally. got nurtured in, in just the right way. I think you said that so great because I think when people, especially that come to yoga, they're like, many people find the practice because they're trying to heal something in them. And so then they find teachers. And then I think, uh, an issue occurs when they think that 
the very thing that they're looking for is outside of them. It's this teacher has the answer. This leader has the answer. This program has the answer. And I think in you saying that it, it, all of that lives inside of a person already, the potential of any big transformation lives inside of everybody. The potential to be a teacher lives inside of everybody. It's just, what are you going to tap into? There's nothing really so outside of you that you can't have it yourself, which is then like why guru dumb is such a thing because many people come looking for an answer and then think it's outside of them when really it's, it's inside of them. Yeah. It's like the potential of the whole tree exists in the seed. Exactly. No. Yeah. The seed has no idea that it could be anything other than a seed. Exactly. Yeah. Same with the butterfly. It's amazing. yeah, and we really see that so often at the studio where, where students who, I mean, a lot of people come to us because they want to be Katona teachers. And it's really beautiful to watch like people step inside of the practice and, and embody it and find their voice as a teacher. But not everyone wants to be a teacher who comes to see us. And that that transformation still takes place. And yeah, it, it is it's such a privilege to watch honestly and it's really inspiring because when you're immersed in that that kind of culture where people are constantly it's such a a dedicated practice to self-renovation versus like worshiping one person or one set of ideals um i think it it lends itself it, it becomes this contagious kind of thing yeah totally and i think that to your point of like just like the the different ways that language and how teaching can be so healing even if someone doesn't want to become a yoga teacher i think what the katona practice inspires in people is a different way of looking at themselves and organizing themselves and organizing their narrative and understanding how they're using their memories and where they're going and which direction they're facing physically and emotionally and the moment that you're more organized in that regard, physically and emotionally, then you become a teacher even to your friends. Like it's just a natural way. It's like the moment you have yourself or more of yourself or an understanding of yourself and your life and your narrative, and you have language to the things that once felt like deep unsolved mysteries, um, then you naturally become a teacher in the conversations that you have because there's no way that that's not just reflected in who you are while you're having coffee, while you're going home to visit your family, while you're talking to a friend who's sad, while you are grappling with something. So a teacher can mean so many different things. It doesn't mean to be you in front of a room. Yeah. God, thinking about what you said about Katona being a maternal practice, I've never heard it described that way. And to me, a, like a maternal practice is, is a true lineage because moms give birth to things. And in a way, Katona teaches you to give birth to yourself all the time where you're shedding shedding a snake skin and then re-emerging or you're going from caterpillar to butterfly and then you're going back to being a caterpillar again and then you're becoming a butterfly. It's such a transformative, um, like regenerative practice. And I think in that way, you're right. It is so maternal because we are really, um, at, when, we, when we accept the role as the teachers in our own, lives in their own sphere of influence we give birth to a whole new line of of thinking and interacting and and being in the world totally that's a really beautiful way of putting it it's so true because you're gonna change whether you're 
aware of it or not or participating with the transformation or not so better to have techniques to navigate the changes and to participate in them actively and consciously so that it can feel like giving birth to a new piece of yourself instead of waking up one day and being 40. Yeah. And being like, what the fuck just happened? Exactly. Or like, whoa, this blindsided me or whoa, my life just shifted or whoa, there's a pandemic. It's like, yes, these things, it, it occurs. There's these huge changes. And we have just, it's like, the thing is, is I think so many people when they're searching for more of themselves, think that there is like an answer to there's that they have a question that then can be answered either by someone or eventually by themselves we have no idea what's going on like and the moment that you think that you do like the coronavirus comes to town and dishevels everything and then you're just it's like i one of the big things that's pissing me off during this pandemic honestly is all the like big writings of like of people who it seems like they've just got it pinned down what the Mm -hmm. significance of this moment means and and I think it's an innocent quest when people are doing that because people are just trying to put words to the unnameable like what's happening right now who am I becoming but it's like why why do we have to feel like we have to have it pegged all the time so much of it is part of of remaining to use the theory in the center of the circumstances that you're in. And to truly be so means that it's moving, it's ever shifting. And so you don't need to have the hindsight and the reflection in the moment. Like you can just be in the moment orienting yourself and that's it. And that is good enough. It doesn't make you unproductive and it doesn't mean you failed to say we have no idea what this means. I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows what the hell, but I know how to, I know how to mediate my days as I'm going through the 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 waves of the motions and demotions that come up with the whole. Yeah, I know how to get myself back on the map. This yeah. is different. This is it's extreme. It's it's unprecedented. We've never done this before, but it's no different than like not, none of the stuff that's coming up for any of us is any different than the stuff that came up for us a year ago. No, it's just scalable. Yeah. It's- is a larger scale and it's it's a big one and it's a doozy but I think yeah I think it's like I mean I'm I'm saying this out loud as though I'm saying it like I'm teaching it but I'm really saying it to myself it's like it's like stop the stop trying to feel Alex like you have to have it this all pin figured out like what this means for you in, in a larger scale just don't let yourself off the hook and, and, and be teachable. I think there's a huge aspect of, of teaching that um, requires good teaching, that requires being teachable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Remaining teachable is so important. God. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to learn. Like it's, and, it, and that's, that's thrilling to me. I don't yeah. feel... I think for you too, I think for anybody just on a quest and that it's never like, oh, I've got it. Yeah. I, not that, I mean, I think I have a lot of self-doubt, so I never really feel like, hmm, wow, I'm uh, absolutely a genius about this one thing. But anytime I, I feel like I've mastered something, it it's kind of like a red flag. I'm like, oh God, you're getting a little too cozy. You need to, or or actually that's like what depression feels like when I don't feel inspired to to think about something in a new way or learn about something new or follow like some curiosity. 
Do you address like, cause I know your theme is with bedside manner. Do you ever address the like bedside manner you have with yourself? <sighs> Alex, that's a great question. You know, a kind, yes. You know, I don't have a perfect definition for what good bedside manner is, but I, I can see the ingredients like lying themselves on the table. And I think that really is one of the, the key ingredients. I've never thought about it as like having good bedside manner with myself, but I, I think about it a lot as far as like how I relate to myself, how I teach myself, how I treat myself like a student, but I rarely treat myself like a, my own patient, mm. like ever, which is interesting. Now I will, now I will consider that. But what, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's a, I, it's a lifelong for sure battle with the, that inner critic, that inner, whatever it is in, in the day to day. But what I have noticed is, is that when, when I am most awful to my, to myself, like there is usually something happening on the outside that I'm either like, so I have a, back to like the beginning of this conversation. Like I just definitely have a tendency to want to, if I'm feeling unsure or vulnerable or a little scared, my initial reaction is to kind of just destroy, like to, to like burn it all down because then I get high off of the adrenaline and then that feel, the adrenaline makes me feel like I'm being creative or that I'm like juiced up and ready to go. Mm -hmm. But really that's just old behavior because it came from just how having to survive and, and, and make a life for myself. And, and that's what I was running on, like the, the fumes of my adrenaline. Um, and now that I can kind of relax into my life a little bit more and I, and I can counterbalance that tendency to like pick up the phone and get really angry and upset, or instead of curious and having a conversation or keeping it about myself, like I've learned different techniques that kind of help it in a, in a relationship way, reel it in. But it's, it's, an, it's a funny thing that's been coming up lately. And I was actually talking with my therapist about this yesterday, that even though the world's kind of like wild right now, no one knows where they're at. Um, my life, I feel so fortunate while I have my concerns is really, really great comparatively. I feel safe. I am, you know, I have positive relationships. I'm really happy. I feel held. I feel, see, I feel respect. I feel so many wonderful things. And no time in the near future, in the, in the most recent future has my like negative self-talk been louder. And I think mm. that I'm looking for a way because it's like almost like I'm addicted to my adrenals firing or I'm addicted to like burning, burn, lighting little fires and then having like only two options and then having to go and figure those things out because I've burned my other ones down. It's, it's kind of like this grappling lately of like, oh, that's so interesting because if it's not going out, then it's cert it gets contained in. And then it's like this awful, awful, like, like nemesis talking to like the person they hate most in the world's villainous. It's an awful tone that I take with myself, but it's all the ones that it, like the little like spurts I would rather be having outside of myself, but I'm not because I'm using different techniques. But it's just interesting because it always goes somewhere. And I think that is 
it reminded me of how like in Katona, we're never like, just let go, let go because like, it goes somewhere. And I, I really felt that firsthand or have been where it's like, I haven't just let go of that piece of myself. It's moved and it's moving inward when it's not moving outward. So I'm always coming up against myself when, no matter what's going on, whether I'm being destructive on the outside or on the inside. So good bedside manner in a way in that regard is like not necessarily going, here's the tone. I have to shift it. I need to have a gratitude practice. All of those things probably would really be beneficial to me in those moments. And I, should develop them but instead for me what's just helped is realizing like oh this is like destructive energy that's trying to find its footing and it's kind of just naming the thing that feels unnameable in the moment and the minute i do it's like it doesn't stop it but at least there's like a an understanding of what's happening and i'm not just sitting there like beating myself up going what the fuck is wrong with me and then getting more mad at myself for being mad at myself you know you know that like domino effect of negativity and all that so it's just been interesting to see it and go oh this is so sneaky like we are the most sneaky yet the most obvious beings on earth completely because it's like why why wouldn't it be the thing that's happening right now for you if that's so in your first nature and if that's like your addiction or your habit it's like well well duh <laughs> we weren't expecting a new problem yeah it's the same problem in different clothing yeah it's like well today i'm wearing this it's not new and so it's yeah it's why i think i love the idea that lives so and is so entrenched in the in our practice where it's like you don't get fixed and you don't fix like it just is a constant conversation with like your lunacy, like what it is that you just have and it's part of you. Like, and, and, and for years I was so jazzed on this idea that this practice would give me techniques to eliminate those pieces of myself. And it was only until like the past year or two that I, I had the, I like heard it. Cause you know how sometimes when you hear a lot of theory, it's like, then you hear it, but it's been what's being said for years, but then you hear it when you were ready to hear it. It was like, I heard that. I heard like, you are not the archetype. You are never going to be the archetype. You are you with all your foibles. It's just how you navigate them. And so it was such a relief because I got to take some pressure off myself because I'm not here to eliminate me, my first nature, my magnetic pole. Those are, it's an, they're, within those things live amazing things as well. I'm not trying to rid myself of them, but I do need to bring them to the conscious plane, the solar plane and train them or else they always without fail get the best of me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that constant conversation between you and your, your lunacy. Cause I think, I mean, that kind of ties it back to this idea of language and how we approach our, our issues or our problems or our health challenges or whatever. It's like, what if instead of trying to fix it, we just said, like, okay, um, wh what does it feel like when you do this? Or mm -hmm. when when is this really a problem for you? When does this feel okay? Or how are you feeling? Or what are you feeling? And 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 the minute I think we as teachers shift into a, into a place where we're helping people articulate their pain or their dilemmas then we get, we, it's like we throw them the keys to the car and, and they're in the driver's seat and they can figure out, they can take it from there. But the, the, 
when we set ourselves up like we're these healers or these magicians, that even that word implies that the, the person who's in our care has no agency whatsoever and that they're not really even a, a participant. They're just, there's just like a body splayed out and like waiting to be fixed. And that's so, I mean, not only is that not what's happening in our studio, like we are putting students to work, like they're getting up, I mean, pre-COVID, they're getting up and adjusting other people. Like they're becoming our second, third, fourth, fifth pairs of hands when we're adjusting someone. Yeah, yeah. You're putting students to work. You're also the material just demands you are doing the work and being uncomfortable. And um, it's a very confrontational practice for sure. Um, but I think that's why it's beautiful because, yeah, you're just always, you're going to show up whether it's in a classroom or when you have a fight with your partner or whatever, like that will be there. So better to do it when you're on a mat in a room where everyone's doing it. Yeah. And everyone has kind of agreed that the intentions are good and we're all here to help each other. And like, it, maybe it's, there's less emotional, like, um, what do they call it when people are shooting and someone gets shot on the sidelines? Shrapnel. Sure. Uh, yeah. There's those like emotional shrapnel, like flying <laughs> around with like the, when you're fighting with your, your partner or your mom or whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it, it was a jarring thing. It still is sometimes. And now I just think it's amazing, but sometimes I'm like, this is crazy what we do, how everybody is just talking in a way about, like one of the main, if you go into the studio and go in the back room, pre-COVID, mm -hmm. a group of people always just sitting back there. And the conversation is like, always just so honest about like, this is my blind spot. Here's my first nature. I did this thing again. This is where I was. What do I do about this? How do I overcome this? Where am I spun out? What are you seeing in my foot? People are so hungry to have these conversations and to like, get feedback from others about some of their like biggest, darkest mm -hmm. features. And I think that that's so amazing because it's not all these people are just yoga teachers. These are people who have full-time jobs and just come and are members of a community. And I think people are so hungry for this conversation, but often get led to a well in the wellness industry that is deep and bottomless and just makes you feel like you have to either keep consuming and buying or going and just doing training after training after training when meanwhile it's really just put into words what's going on like ask a question have someone see you don't try to hide the thing don't try to cover the thing like reveal the thing because you are anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's with just such a great relief because yeah, I think as like a young, as a young yoga teacher and as someone, when I was just trying to like build my career, I always saw it as, again, something just outside of me. Well, she looks like she has it all together. I need to like know what she does from nine to six every day so I can mimic that. And so everything was outside of me. And so every step that I took towards what I thought I wanted took me eight steps further away from me because I was like, well, I just... I need to just separate from that. And if I could just, it's funny, I've been cleaning out like a lot of my 
stuff in my room and I keep all of my planners and journals because I find them I've I've been keeping hand planners since I've been a teenager and I have all of them and it's amazing because you could just open up like a 2012 and be like oh my god but within those things I have like notes and like you know like things I was thinking and jotting down and it the my language has changed so much over the years it was all this like I am so I am so lost. I am so this, I hate this about myself. If I could only just, if I could just, and just that little girl who was just like really trying to figure it out, thinking that it was all just like this big odyssey that I had to take outside of myself when really it was like, I just have to start to put to words some of these things and, and say them and share them with people and hear what others are seeing and see where it's living on my body. And, you know, it, it was like, almost like make it less dramatic and secretive and personal and precious and like bring it to the stage. And the second it did, it was the most healing property that I've ever used in my life. It's like the minute I got my feet right in front of a group of people and Abby and Naveen are just calling out all of these things that I was like, oh my God, that's my thing. That's my thing. That's my thing. But all these people are just sitting there and nodding and seeing and relating to it and associating to it. It was like, oh my God, we are all just like human beings with dents and, and holes and vacancies and really strong places in our lives and really like amazing features and also limited features. It was just, it was just the most incredible insight, I think ever. It was what, it's why when I say, I think that's at the root of when I say that this practice changed my life. It has in so many other ways, but it was really that one. It was like, oh, this journey doesn't have to be a big secret between me and my journal. Mm. And then I look a certain way when I'm in front of the room or when I'm at work or when I'm with my friends or when I'm with my family. That's so beautiful. It really becomes this like communal, collaborative, communicated experience that you just get sort of sucked into if, if you come regularly. Yeah. I I mean, I know from experience, but I also imagine because you teach so many people year to year that it can be quite intense to re- see people. You know, it's intense to be seen, but mm-hmm. it's also intense to see other people. And I'm wondering how you approach that and navigate I mean, beyond just like, how good boundaries? Like, what is, how do you actually approach seeing people and staying in your center while, while you're doing that? I actually think, and it's funny because you were having a chat with Allie Bogard and she has been one of my teachers from the get-go, even pre-finding Katona. I um, was a huge fan of hers, still am. And on the last teacher's live-in that she did, she was explaining um, codependency and like what that looks like. And I really had such an, such an association to having like a, a little chunk of codependency in, in teaching, how we're kind of codependent as teachers. We're looking around the room, are they liking this? Or is this, is this good? Are they receiving me? Is it this? And I think I still have some of that and it's like a, it's a, it's a battle. But when I first started teaching and especially, and as you know, when you start reading feet and doing the whole body reading thing, I was so codependent on the person sitting in front of me. Do they look like they're enjoying themselves? Am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? 
And I think it was before I really had my sea legs with the theory. And so it's an annoying answer to your question because it's like, well, if you know the theory, that becomes the boundary, but it really does. Like when you start working one-on-one with people, it's having like the theory that sits as this like, uh, this like um, membrane between you and the person. So it's like, there's like this thing and you're really with them and you're seeing them, but it's a, it's a natural boundary that exists. Cause it's not me going, I'm really picking up here that you were traumatized when you were little. And I think that also is showing up in your foot. It's like, it's like your body is your house. Like it's, it's just really having a blueprint and then having that, like just, yeah, really, it really protects me from merging my energy with the person sitting in front of me because it was so depleting. I was like an empty balloon or a half filled balloon for so many years when I first started teaching privates and trying to do the body reading because I was so attached to reading the nuances of what their experience was that I wasn't reading them. I was like reading my want of approval of my want and desire to approve of me and think I'm a good teacher. Yeah. So taking a step away from like thinking I needed to master all of that and just doing a private of like a few poses and maybe a couple of like vinyasa poses at that time or whatever it was like taking the pressure off myself to go full Katona at first was really like a blessing because it was like, okay, I need to learn this theory, apply it to myself, really understand it before I'm going to give it to others. And then the minute that that happened, you know, you sit with people and you're, you're sensing them and you're picking up on things, but that paired and partnered with this idea of, I am not here to fix anybody. I am not a therapist. I am not like going to change a life. I might, but it won't be because of me. It'll be because of like my use of this material and how I make them feel safe and all of that, because I have that technique, not because I'm some like witchy healer in that moment, you know, maybe in other moments, but like not in that moment, I'm not collecting money from people to go and heal them. It's like, I'm using, I have a handle on this material. I'm going to use it to try and give them an insight. And then in that process, I think that I just am that taking that pressure off myself has cleared the way for me to pick up on the nuances of, are they hearing me? Does this language make sense to them? Am I Is it like I'm speaking Portuguese and I need to dumb this down? Can we go further and can I get more esoteric? Should I bounce away from the body as the house metaphor and use another one? Like, it's like how it's, you can read that with people and it's less about me and them and more about how do I best communicate to them what I'm trying to say, what I'm seeing and to ask how they're doing. It's like, I'm not, I'm, nothing I'm going to tell them is something they all don't already know, which was what my experience was when I first got read, which was the big aha. What Naveen and Abby were telling me in front of a group of people was stuff I knew, but thought only I could ever know mm-hmm. or else I wouldn't be loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. And I think like, I mean, I definitely have codependent tendencies and work really, really hard to dismantle them. And I, I think one of the big like wants of anyone with codependent tendencies is to like anticipate everyone's needs and sort of pre uh, fill those needs. And it's impossible to do when you're working with a group of students because there are so many bodies, but even one-on-one you miss, like you're looking, you're trying to anticipate what the nuances are before you even get the chance 
to have the student tell you what the nuances are. And, and I, I love, I love this practice for that reason. And I love what you're saying for that reason, because it's like, okay, someone puts their feet together in front of you. They have a flat foot. You can tell the student what you know about flat feet or the nature of things that are flat. And then it, if you actually like let yourself take some space away from that experience, it's like, what does the person in front of you do? They talk about all the ways that they're flat or all the ways that they notice flatness come up in their, in their lives. And then it's like, okay, you've, that thing that you wanted so much at the beginning to like parse out all these nuance and have this like really like light bulb moment. It happens like for itself Mm -hmm. instead of us like coming in with our agendas and like imposing this like insecurity on this poor person who's asking for our help. Yeah, totally. That's another feature that um that's another feature of what Ali said when she was having the codependency lecture too it's like when you try and do exactly that what you were just saying the anticipatory like I'm going to anticipate your wants and needs and try and fulfill them before you even know you have them it totally robs that other person of the challenge of saying I'm not quite sure what you mean can you go further with that or I don't like the word flat. I have a negative association to that. Is there another way to talk about flat or, or, you know what? Um, it's so funny. That is true. And I never really share this, but this is the association I'm having. Is it okay? I told you that like, then somebody has to articulate themselves and you are not trying to like get 90 steps ahead of them. Like you rob them of having to come around to something, whether it's, ending up for themselves, whether it's asking for clarification, whether it's joining you, whatever it is, you rob them of it. And that to me, um, as someone with codependent tendencies, for sure resonated because I want them to have a good experience. It's like part of the whole, it's an innocent want. They're sitting in front of you. They want something. I'm trying to anticipate what they want. It's a really nice action, but why not like let them, like you're saying, share their insights, say what they have to say. And then, and then it's a, it's a really, really balanced and harmonious experience. And then I think you really just feel like a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's, it's such a collaborative process. And of course, like, of course we're all empathetic. Of course we're all creative and intelligent. Like we wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be drawn to this work if we weren't. So it's like, of course, if you're in a moment where you're being asked to be empathetic and creative with your thinking or quick-minded, like you're, you're going to seize that moment. You don't have to plan it out at 10 million steps in advance. However, I think, you know, like in, in a room full of people and, and you have like 10 people who've never been to the studio and then like five uh, regulars there is a little bit of that balancing act of having to be like the host of the party and looking around and saying, okay, what does this person need? And what does that person need? So how do you, how do you handle a situation like that where you really have to kind of pull out your codependent toolbox, but you don't get completely like consumed by that moment? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that in those moments, if there's people who are new in the room, like everyone does have to slow it down for a second. And like, and it is such a community in that way. Like if you go in planning like a really crazy hard class and then 10 new people are there and only five people who know the practice are there, you can't necessarily do that, which is why I'm not a big advocate for like 
planning every moment of your class because you just don't know what you're going to walk into. Mm -hmm. And I think when it's a really good practice, which yoga practices are, uh, a really advanced person doing a more like coming back to like finding the right angle and really spending time there and really workshopping dogs and really workshopping some of the more foundational doing air quotes right now, like foundational poses is really good for everybody because we all develop over time familiar rigidity in our bodies where no matter how clean and archetypal the poses get, you are still a habitual human. Like you still have blind spots. You still, even if you're almost at a right angle, are probably a hair off. So it behooves everybody to go back and like, and like remeasure and revisit like poses we think we've already just gone through or are too novice for us or something. It behooves everyone. So in those settings, I really am just like, I pay attention to the beginners because they need it. They need the tenderness and the, they need to be brought in. But then there's also the communal aspect of like, you're just going to have to swim along with the sharks here. Like you're in the, you're, you're deep in the water. We're just going to do this practice. I'm not going to change the practice for you. You have to measure up to it. It's not going to make sense at first, but hopefully when they leave their bodies feel as amazing as it does after a really juicy class. And that's what brings them back. They're like, some things were said in there that I have no idea what she meant, but my body did in some way. So I'm going to go back, you know? So that's how I, battle that it's like it's less about oh I have to please these new these new people but it's more like we can all slow down for a second go back to the basics and it allows me it's also harder to teach beginners in a room I think so it's really challenging it's such an art so it's actually really exciting I think as a teacher to go there and then you really lean on the people who know the practice to be leaders with you in that moment and it's amazing when the room comes together that way and I think all of that really helps me not latch on to like, are they liking it? Do they hate it? Um, yeah. Or picking like awesome. one student where it's like, oh, I really feel like that one person in the corner is having a terrible time. So I'm going to cater this whole thing so that that person gives me a smile. And then they're scowling the entire time. But two minutes after class, they like give you a big hug and say it was the best class I ever had. It's like, how could you possibly know? I know. And your day was just ruined because you yeah. were like on them and you weren't really focused on the other people and yeah it's a classic I feel yoga teacher like everybody will be like "Mm -hmm, yeah I've done that and then totally got knocked sideways on the head when they were like that was the best class I've ever taken you're like you really could have fooled me like you I would have given my life savings on the fact that you were having a miserable time (laughs) yeah 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 it's a good codependency like a boot camp I think to teach a, a class a public yoga class. Yeah, you really see what you do. And I think that there's this moment where you take the role of, of the seat as the teacher and you're like, mm-hmm. here I am in the room, that we often forget that like, if someone has a question or if someone has a conundrum or if someone has an ache or a pain and you don't know what to do, it's okay to be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, or, or I don't know what that means. Or you know what? Like, I've never really heard of this one. I, here's my hunch, but like, I'm going to ask around my teachers or if anyone in the room has something to offer. It's like, we are not all knowing omnipotent beings just because we have a yoga certification. It's so fine to just be like, you know, I don't know about that, but that's a really good question. That's not really my like practice, but I'm going to think about it. And if I see you around, I'll have an answer for you because you've inspired me to think about it or 
it's just, I don't know. It's totally fine not to know. I love what you just said. I, and I think it is at the, at the heart of what we do. It's like asking questions, continuing a conversation. Nothing is a full stop. Nothing is a full stop. And no. it's, it's so powerful to say, I don't know. Or let's, let's keep thinking about this. Let's keep talking about this. Here, does anyone have any input? Like I have no, it's really puzzling to me. And that's exciting. And I don't want to answer every question with just like the scripture of like, well, you go to the mainframe and this, da, 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 da. it's like some people ask such amazing questions and like, I could take a stab at it, but also there are probably better people in the world who could answer that question. And I'd like to learn from them too. Yeah. And not knowing is like, we for, I think it's like the first thing that's forgotten when you're given your certificate. That <laughs> you're a teacher, you must know. It's not yeah. true. Yeah. It's funny. I'm thinking about this. Sorry to bring up fucking coronavirus, but like it's such this moment where like we just want to know, we just want to know. But in this context, like not knowing makes us feel powerful. It's so exciting to not know because it means you can learn something else. And so I'm just having this like aha moment where I'm like, oh, maybe this is actually really incredible that we're in this prolonged, never ending state of not really knowing. And there's yeah. just so much to, to, to learn in that space. There's so much to learn in it. I, I, I love looking sometimes at like the trends of self-help books. And if yeah. you look over the decades of like the titles, it's like one is like, you know, like whatever, like that you have like the body keeps score and those things, but then it's like the subtle art of not giving a fuck or like how to clean up or, or how to do nothing or how to whatever. And then it's like, take it all on in 10 days or do this in 10, like there's such trends and all of it has the subcontext of having to know what to do at all times. Like having to know what to do about, about relaxing, having to know what to do about not knowing what to do, having to know what to do. It's like, why do we have to know? And how is this one book going to tell me? Do you know what? Yesterday I was... <laughs> I was reading about chronotypes because I have crazy insomnia and like I just cannot get a sleeping schedule under control. And so I was researching chronotypes and, and discovering about myself that like my body's natural tendency is to stay up really late. And I was, I stumbled upon this guy who wrote a book called The Power of When. And I was watching his video with just like this utter disdain because he was telling me that like he had all this data about when to uh, get a medical procedure, when to have sex, when to eat, when to go for a run, when to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, buddy, how could you possibly know? Like, I'm not going to buy your fucking book. Like, you don't, you don't know anything about my life or what I want to accomplish in a day. Like, how dare you like sell this snake oil to people when you could just turn people loose and, and, and allow them to orient themselves? And also people need different things. People have different blood types. People have different like things, exactly. like different rhythms. Have you ever seen the high maintenance episode with like, he's like, it's like, um, I forget the title of it and I will um, write it to you. So if, in case anyone's curious what that's listening, but it's like the mega efficiency man is what it, it's, it is. Or it's like a, something like that title where the whole episode, do you know high maintenance? I've, I've seen like a few episodes, but I know the premise. He's just a weed dealer in Brooklyn. And so yeah. he's 
delivering and then like you go with him to like the deal and then you get introduced to this character and then you're kind of a fly on the wall to their life or you're involved in a situation with them and so it sticks with this man who follows all the like highest efficiency procedures like he masturbates at this time he eats only little bits all throughout the day he wakes up in the middle of the night and goes for a walk goes back to bed and wakes up and goes back to bed by setting an alarm because there are some theories that not sleeping a full eight hours is more efficient than sleeping eight hours. Like, and it was just so funny because it's just true. We are just looking for like the knowing of like how to be most efficient and effective. And it's like, none of that involves like stopping, admitting you don't know, and then like listening to what you might want in that moment. And that could be like a cookie or a nap or to read a book or to go for a walk. It could be a number of things, but why is it prescriptive? Yeah. Yeah. Why do I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't crave prescriptions of any kind and it's really hard for me to follow any kind of, that's my disease is that I just cannot stay on any kind of a map without like extreme effort, but it boggles my mind that, that there are people bless them. I wish I had like a, a micro dose of that, that like need to be told what to do, mm-hmm. but we've yeah. just taken it to a, a, a level that is insulting, honestly. It is insulting. <laughs> it's so funny though, because when you were like being told what to do, I had the association to like, after like a big body read or something, a certain t- people will often be like, so what do I do? Like as though they need to walk away with the like little sleeve of paper that is the like RX like here six times a day do this, do this. And it's like of all the information that was just received, like you want like a linear solution to your sphere of like your your narrative that is so wide ranging and and wild and amazing and beautiful. Like you want to go right to like so what do I do and how do I get better? It's like, oh God, like, it's just such a funny question because it's related to that. It's like, well, okay, so what do I do? Yeah. And the answer is always come to class. Come to class, do the practice, like change how you're sitting for the next week and see if you feel any different. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Just see, see what happens. Should we, I, I feel like we should briefly describe what a body read is since we've been referencing it. And maybe some people haven't had the pleasure of experiencing one or witnessing one. It's a good idea. Um, so a body reading is most often done when we do a Katona yoga style private. And so a student will come in and in order for us as teachers to kind of understand what to do with them in a private and to also be clear, a Katona yoga private is very different than like a vinyasa yoga private or even like doing a 60 minute yoga class. Our privates look very restorative. There are tons of props. We usually only do like six six to like 10 poses at most in privates because they're long holds, very therapeutic. So the body reading done at the beginning of a private is the chance for the teacher to just take a peek at you, at the student, and kind of know what to do with them. But then the big 
life joke is, well, you do everything with everybody. So you sit the person down and you say, bring the bottoms of your feet together, like in a Baddha Konasana or a butterfly pose. And the way one sits without any props and the way just one sits when they're told to sit with the bottoms of their feet together is so revealing because people do so many different things. And all of those things that one is showing you in that moment are showing you a piece of their first nature, just what they're, what they're, what they do when you tell them to be yourself and sit down in front of me. Many people sit way back on their tailbone and their shoulders are rounded. Many people pull their feet in towards their chest. Many people flop open, like a new, a variety of things. But then our job as the teacher is to take this informal seat that they're in and formalize it using the material and the theory. And so we put their butt up on blankets, we strap them in, we give them blocks, and we put them at a real right angle so that they're plugged in down in their pelvis in their perineum, the crown of their heads above them, and they're sitting upright. And then in that moment, instead of trying to get a read off of what you're seeing when a person just sits in front of you, which is just revealing too much of them, you get to see how the person measures up to the formality of a right angle and the formality of a grid. And our grid really just looks like a tic-tac-toe board. So in shorter terms, we're just looking at the upper body, the, lower, the middle body, and the lower body, and the right, the middle, and the left and the back, the center, and the front, and how all of those quadrants in the human body relate to one another. And that kind of sets you up for like, what does this person do? What is their best area of use? What is a piece of them that they're not using? Where is there some damage? Where is there some pathology? Where is there an injury? Where is there, you know, really remarkable beauty and form? Where is there all of these things? And then you kind of get to narrate that to them using the theory and then mold your private lesson off of that. But the importance of that body read in that moment is the language that you're using. Because if you are not speaking in a way that that person understands, they just kind of feel like they're put on the spotlight and it's like, well, what are we doing here? So you're giving them this theory and this esoteric dialogue, this new esoteric relation to their body using your body as your house. You have a basement, a living room, and an attic. Everybody can visualize that. You know, you have a pelvis, a torso, and a head. And then you have all your associations to a basement, to a living room, to an attic. And then you kind of speak the common language of that. So the body reading where it can feel like, whoa, that sounds really big and intense, the language is specifically really earthy and grounded and everyone knows a home Everyone knows what it is to live in a house. And so you kind of, as the teacher-student, bridge, form, and build that bridge um, and invite them into the theory in the same way that they're inviting you into their proverbial house. It's kind of like our, our intake. Like yeah. if, if you go for an acupuncture appointment, they check your yeah. pulse and your tongue and ask you a billion questions about your sleep and your digestion. But, you know, as someone who does both body reading and in taking people for an acupuncture session, I think there's the the richness of a of a body read is is like it's unlimited because you're looking at, I mean you're looking at the whole body too in an acupuncture intake, but I don't know there's just something about being on the floor with someone face to face and moving things around and 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 just sort of letting the body uncover itself that is it's just like it's just like juicy and fun. Yeah, the body's so amazing. 
and it changes so it's like you someone comes to you and then six months later you look at them again and it'll look different just because the person's different yeah yeah what do you do in those one-on-one settings when you encounter resistance around that level of confrontation I used to get kind of confrontational back (laughs) like it was (laughs) (laughs) I used to kind of be like, no, we're doing this and really think that the, I used to think, I think that the, the boundary I was holding in that moment was like forcing the material because if I used the material and made them understand it, that then that was me holding a good boundary. And then through time and just through hearing different teachers teach it, not just our teachers, but you know, like Dejus, for instance, when I um, was in one of her body reading things, she was like, don't, you don't, if the person doesn't want it, don't make them hear it. If, if, you know, you don't have to, you can look and just be like, wow, what a beautiful seat you're in. And you can be doing your silent intake mm-hmm. and not even really be giving them anything of what you're seeing and you use it for you and then like call it a day. So I kind of have adopted a little bit more of that of like, if the person is just either really resistant, really uncomfortable in that seat, really just like, if this is like, I'm not here for the esoteric, I'm here for you to work on my body, then I can kind of let that go in the moment. But I know that there'll be another way in down the road that like in a pose, you can say it or while they think that they're getting like a bodywork moment, you can introduce the material. Like you, you have to just be then incredibly sneaky, um, with how you use it. And um, yeah, it just took the pressure off myself to think that I had to like battle somebody and be like, it's like, no, that person's there to see you. They're there for something. If they're really resistant to that moment, fine. And then it's on you as a teacher to get in there in a different way. It's part of that. It's part of that really indirect use of language. If you're picking up on like, this is too much for me. I'm nervous. I'm not even listening because I'm freaking out or I'm mad that you're doing this. Then make them comfortable and make them safe and make them feel in control. Because if they're just upset, their ears aren't going to be open anyway. Like they're not going to be listening anyway. And then it's just a waste of that hour and you can totally use it in a more productive way. It's so true. And I, I think like the, uh, the a common codependent sort of, um, uh, tendency in that moment would be to like coddle the person and sort of baby the the, the resistance that's coming up and we are so <laughs> we're so taught not to do that at the studio that uh, I can see why sort of battling that moment would feel productive but it also again it, it robs you of the of the experience of trusting that, you know, maybe in 25 minutes, that person will be a little bit more chilled out and receptive. And it doesn't have to be right now. It doesn't have to be, the timing doesn't have to be my timing. It can just take the time that it needs to take for this material to sink in. So interesting. During this whole COVID time, so I've been on, I've been in therapy one-on-one for years. Um, But just during COVID, my therapist was like, I think it would be a really great time for you to start group therapy, like Mm. for it. And so during COVID, I've joined this group through Zoom and I had no idea what I was walking into. I had what I thought it would look like. But then when I got in and I've learned over the past couple months that it was, I couldn't have planned for it because my therapist has been 
this group that I entered has been together for 25 years. So there are people in it and there, there's one member who was in there for two and a half years. So she's the most recent, then I came in and then another new person was invited in, but there's eight of us and just three of us are like relatively new, the new, the longest of the new people being there two and a half years. So that's like, that leaves five members of the group who've had a group dynamic uh, for 25 years. That's and so intense. It was really intense. And so I kind of, I, I've just learned so much about like what I'm doing in that setting and what kind of player I am in that like, I wanted to go in and I really, it was important that everybody liked me. So I was being really sweet and I was kind of quiet and I was, everybody was furious that I was there. I mean, furious at my therapist. And it was so crazy to have to sit there and have everybody's rage coming up about, it's like, it's like mom had a new baby and I hate the baby. I'm not accepting this baby. I have a lot to talk about today, but I have nothing to say because she's here and I don't trust her. And so, and I'm really mad at you for bringing her here because you've broken my trust. And like me just having to kind of sit there and be like, okay, okay. And like mediate what to do. And several times I've had the instinct just to hang up because I've just gotten so pissed and I'm like, well, fuck this. Like these people suck. Why would my therapist bring me into this? She's setting me up to fail. But what I've realized now is like kind of similar on, on a different scale, but similar to what we were just saying is like, they like needed to just kind of have their time and like diffuse and learn who I am. And that, that trust is building over time, not through me saying the right thing or the wrong thing. It's really just time and them seeing me week after week and getting to know my face and understand who I am. And now they're starting to open up and now we're starting to connect. And it's kind of similar. It's like if you meet, if I as a teacher meeting a resistant student, I can choose to be like, say I'm in group. Hi, I'm Alex. And you know what? You guys are being assholes and this is stupid and da da da. But then I have to take a step back and be like, well, what is my end game here? Well, I want to be a member of this group. And if I just explode, sure, it might feel like a discharge because I feel pissed at all of you or I, and I want to dominate and tell you I'm here and you know, I'm paying for this and you're, I'm sitting here silent, listening to you bitch and moan about me. Like I could say all of that. Or I could kind of like take a couple steps back and wait and like get in and build their trust and then build the foundation of trust and the relationship. And that's going to allow us to go deeper, I think, faster than if I just was like, trust me, I'm here. What the hell? This is stupid. And I think it's a similar thing. It's like a microcosmic experience of that in the room where it's like you could jam the material down someone's throat sitting in front of you and they might come around and go, you know what? You have a point. I was being resistant for no reason. Or you can just give it time and see them and put them in poses, make their body feel really good. And they eventually will start to trust you and accept you and be curious about you and then maybe even ask about you. And then through that asking, you get to share some of this material. And then they'll be like, okay, I'm ready for a body reading. Or I'm ready for you to see me. Or I'm ready to see you. And that's just what it, it I just made that connection here and now in the moment to the group. Because the instinct really in the beginning was to be like, screw all of you. You suck. Like, how are you in your late 40s and you're mad at a 
33-year-old for showing up trying to do work on herself, but that's not what it was about. It was just about all of their narrative, their rage, their discomfort, and the minute that you just give it time, the relationship then has that foundation, it's set up, and then we'll be able to go where I want. So I think it's true in a private, like you can't, you can't force someone into it. You have to, you have to build the foundation of trust and safety. And then eventually they'll be curious to go there without fail. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially when the material and the, the actual work that you're doing, just like in group therapy, it's like when the actual activity is so therapeutic, it's like, yeah, you, you can't, you can't not like melt into that. Right. The resistance is actually the most fascinating thing. Like when it's all pleasantries, it's like not real yet or something. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I agree with that so much. And I think that that is something that I, I try and teach a lot that, you know, you can end the war by joining the resistance. Yeah. And yeah. Who we are at our best moments is interesting to watch and fun and like glossy and exhilarating in, in, in one aspect, but like, I'm so now curious about this tendency that you have to like destroy everything in your path. Like, because I can, re- I can relate to that and it is interesting. And there's so many questions that I have about that, about like how that feels in your body and like what that's felt like in your, like when you have a crush, you know, it's like that you could take that a million places, but like being perfect or being like excellent in all ways, first of all, doesn't happen. Second of all, not very interesting. No. And I feel like, using those things like the the need to destroy or the destructive or the throwing the baby out with the bathwater, using those things, putting words to it and having an insight about it is the thing that makes me pleasant to be with in the moment. So it's the very, it's how like, well, it's how like the, the poisons in the medicine, like it, it's like, there's a little bit of the poison that lives in the medicine, in the prescription that you're taking it. I think it's like, I can be very like cordial to be around. I'm sure if everybody in my group, for instance, was like, welcome, what's up? What do you do? Da, 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 that I could have manipulated them for years into thinking I was really nice and sweet and articulate and, you know, had some substance, but I didn't then have to kind of show up in a moment and be like, I know that maybe you don't want to hear from me, but that comment was really hurtful and it's really bringing up this and it's making me feel like I just want to hang up. That is so much more of who I am. And that makes me and our relationship that we'll have in that group dynamic so much deeper and more intricate than, or like, or even like, Hey, I want to like tell you right now, I hate your guts. That comment was so frustrating. All I want to do is like, if I was in person, I'd be scared. I was going to hit you in the face. That was so ridiculous. Like that, like destructive or that anger then brings our relationship to the next place versus me sitting there and being pleasant. And so like the, it's almost like my, I'm thinking very specifically about in terms of what that looks like you know, when in trainings, when we do, when we do 30 hours or 50 hours at the studio, we usually sit in a circle with all the participants and say, share something implicit about yourself. When people just share something that's pleasant, implicit, oh, I, I got into walking last year and walking just changed my life. You know, that is implicit. They were doing the thing. But when I'm thinking in that moment, as like, 
a member of that training, but also someone who's a teacher in that training, what I'm going to share, I try and share something that I'm really in real time grappling with. Because by, by sharing it, exposing it, putting it into words, I feel like you're getting so much of a sense of who I am and so much you're getting the pleasantness, the pleasantries about me because you're seeing, oh, she's trying to look at this and this is what she's taking from it and she's using her competency and that's really intelligent, but also, whoa, that's an intense thing she's grappling with there. So that's kind of what I mean where it's like when you share, it's those things I think always that make people so much more interested, interesting. It's what connects me to people. I don't care how nice you are. I think that's fantastic. But like, I don't care. <laughs> yes, you just perfectly proved why having good bedside manner is not just being nice. It's and not. Think of people saying that like it's a compliment. Like being nice is not <laughs> the be all end all, and it doesn't have any real. I mean, it's pleasant, but it doesn't have any real. Uh, like sometimes it doesn't have any value in that in the situation at hand and as as a as a patient or as a student i would this is why i started a podcast because i would much rather know who i'm dealing with i would much rather know who is putting needles in my body or touching my body or forcing me to, to con confront pain from years and years and years and years ago that's been building up so it's like where did we get it in our heads that like putting this like sparkly little band-aid on every ailment with a smile on our face is the yeah. way to help people feel better. It's such a, it's such a shame and it's such a disservice to this, the, the work of self-inquiry that, that we're constantly doing. Right. And it's a funny, it's a, it's a thin line, right? Between someone glorifying their past pain and here's the lesson I learned and from that point on I never exploded at my partner all that like the hindsight lesson versus when you are in in the moment in the moment because if I ever it's like what you were saying in the beginning it's like the minute you think you've mastered something you're kind of like you get on to yourself and you're like what is that thing it's like oh wow I've I've been handling my like tendency to fire off a lot better in the past year than I ever have in the past. I've been bouncing back faster. It's an amazing thing. But just as I was telling you earlier, it's still in me. It's still going somewhere. It's like ripping me to shreds on the inside on certain days of going, you are the worst. You suck. You're diseased. You're that like awful, awful name calling. That is the same product of that, of that stuff that wanted to just spew and discharge out. It just goes in. And so if I ever were to come to you and be like, well, now that I'm a reformed rage, like it's yeah. run, run in the opposite direction because I've lost my mind. I've lost it. I've drank some Kool-Aid and I've, you know, I'm gone because it, it's just not true. I can, I, yeah, it's, it's just not true. It just doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't go away ever and I and, and healers are like people acupuncturists are people teachers are people and people are flawed yeah that's what qualifies us to help and we have this is my my kind of my thesis on bedside manner is that I can't really tell you what it is but I can tell you where it originates from and if we take the the Venn diagram that we use all the time in Katona on the left side you have who you are and on the right side you have what you do and it's the intersection, the, the little portal 
like it, behind that door, that's where bedside manner lives, where you mediate being a person and being someone with like a very specific set of skills that help people feel better. And you can't help people feel better unless you are people. Yeah. It gets that simple. <laughs> I want to make you feel better, but I'm not immortal. So I have I no idea what it would be. <laughs> I'm just a fairy who swooped in and, you know. Yeah. It's like, it's like trying to explain what water tastes like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you can't, you can't, like, it's just, if you, if you know what water tastes, like, we all know that we know what water tastes like, but if someone were to be like, explain the taste of water to someone who's never tasted water, I don't know if that's a good metaphor, but it's almost like, yeah, I, it's like, you can't, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's no, to it's, say it's, it's perfectly said. And I think that's why we struggle kind of defining like what this bedside manner is. It's like, how do you describe like the dynamic that you bring to every situation especially when people are asking you for help and you're trying to make them feel better, but then you feel like shit sometimes. And then blah, blah, and like all this, it's like, it becomes this really implicit thing. Yeah. That takes on different forms depending on the context. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that. At the end of the day though, it's always about you. 1000%. There's never there's like never, ever, ever not a moment that it's not you, even if someone makes you feel a certain way really strongly. It's like you're having a reaction to them. It's always you. And when you're talking to somebody and you can't get through to them, it's your feeling of not getting through to them. It's always you. You are always there. Nothing is ever being done to you. You're never, nothing is ever out of your control. Nothing is ever, it's, it's such a fat, it's such an obvious concept, but it's such a big one. And I think when you're having good bedside manner or talking to someone who's in despair or talking to someone who's agitated or just talking to someone and trying to figure out who they are and all about them, your, your experience in that moment as the person is still yours like you always have to be bouncing every experience that you're having no matter who you're sitting in front of off of you yeah and I think that's why it's so important to have a really big frame of reference so you have a lot to work with when you're relating to people but ultimately that's why it's so important for us to empower people at the end of the day and not yeah. belittle them not make them small not make them feel like they can't help themselves but but really get some shit out of their way if they if they need some help lend them an extra set of hands but like what we're doing is, is helping other people help themselves. Yeah. Help me help you. Help me help you. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, well, this has been a delight. Such a delight. I want to, I wrote down some things, some like key ingredients that we can add to this little soup of bedside manner that we're cooking. Having good bedside manner with yourself building trust over time and letting time do its thing, trusting the material and go to therapy. <laughs> go to therapy. Is there anything you want to add based on our conversation? I just think it's amazing you're doing this. I think I can't even tell you. I think I'm so proud of you. And I think, um, yeah, the power of like, connecting with people vocally and having people put things into words and asking them questions that inspire me, us, whoever you're talking with to share yourself included is such a powerful journey. Taking your 
taking one's story and kind of having to narrate it or answer specific specific questions about it is has been really fun and so rewarding and it's it's a healing process i think that is like a i feel like a when you're talking to an old person or someone who's lived a life the best thing to do is just ask them questions about their life because one gets to say them out loud and it's like a direct connection to their heart and to their being to their soul to their life to their journey it's like it's such a wonderful thing so i'm so happy you're doing this oh thank you i i think you're right and i don't want to keep you too late but you know my my background is in in the arts and in film and and like all narrative art and I think yeah I, I was drawn to this practice because it's it is so much about having a narrative and continuing a narrative and telling a story and I, I feel like I end every podcast by like hard hard left turning about on a street that is exclusively dedicated and heading straight to the internet is a, a wasteland that's destroying society bill but i think like we are all trying so desperately to grapple with that idea that our stories matter that documenting everything is the same thing as telling our story and and like i think intrinsically like we are societies that are built on story and narrative and passing down stories through generations but we're we're like kind of maxed out and fritzed out and have no idea how to actually effectively do that. And so, yeah, I think that is that is really at the root of why why I thought a podcast would be helpful or interesting for people in this like healing world. I hate that term, but like in the wellness industry, even worse term. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, to remind ourselves that like, there are other ways to take control of narratives here. And, and, and narrative is actually a, a really, conversation and narrative are really therapeutic tools in and of the, themselves. Totally. So, so therapeutic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. It was so fun. You're such a natural at this. Really? I'm going to pause because I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I can't receive compliments on record. <laughs> I mean, I just had to cut it off right there. I simply could not have you listen to Alex compliment me like that. I just, I had to spare you, I had to spare me. So let's just all collectively say thank you to Alex Sherry for being such a gracious and lovely guest. First guest, even. Um, You can get in touch with Alex several ways. I've linked them all in the show notes. And I just want to say, if you are listening, this is a very Katona heavy episode and they won't all be like this, but if you're listening to us describe what we do as Katona teachers and are like, this sounds a little lawless and weird. Um, it is, but it's well worth a little Google deep dive. So I've also added, um, Instagram handles and websites of the little hubs of Katona yoga where Alex and I teach. Um, so come come find us. We'll take good care of you. And Alex is teaching monthly practical workshops. Um, uh, basically, she's teaching teachers how to teach, which is great because she's so good at that. Um, and she does them all on Zoom. They're, they're great for all levels of curiosity and experience. And they're very affordable, and uh, they're just she's 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 great at this. So you, you just gotta check it out. Um, so follow her on Instagram. I've linked her contact info 
hop into one of those trainings. You shall not regret. The last thing I want to say is that I'm compiling a little uh, bedside manner nightstand, if you will. It's going to be a, a database of resources for us as helping people mm-hmm. to use as um, to, to, to expand our frame of reference. So it's not just like articles and like, you know, do this with people to make them feel safe. There's, there'll, there'll be a bit of that. But what I'm mostly collecting are books, movies, art, uh, nature things, random recommendations that feel like a good idea. Just the, the stuff that sort of fills the periphery of our lives as helping people that um, helps us relate to people and relate to the world in a different way. Um, so I'm working on that and I've asked Alex for her recommendations, her additions to the nightstand. And she's given us two books to have a look at. One of them is a classic and that would be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I've been in class before where Alex has referenced that book and, uh, you know, I can personally attest to how, uh, how much material there is in there to reference when working with people. Um, so that's, that's a great pick. And then she has another book called Home Coming, Home Going. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Home Going by Ya Jesse. And this looks beautiful. It's now at the very top of my list. And um, I would love to hear if any of you have read it, what you think. And um, hopefully you love it. I'm going to pick it up very shortly. And thank you, Alex, so much for those recommendations. And with that, dear listener, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for coming to the show. It's been a pleasure from start to finish. I hope you're taking good care of yourself. I hope your crush texted you back. As always, let me know if you need anything. Love you. Bye.